The psalmist wrote in Psalms 19, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is pure and sure and right. It's clean and true. And Lord, may we desire what your word says. Because again, we need to have our souls converted if we're not saved. We need to be made wise if we are simple. We need to have it be the rejoicing of our heart. Father, we know that your word will endure forever. What you say and said in the Old Testament remains true in the New. Father, we know that it, would always, it will always be true. And so give us a biblical mind. The stuff of this world, the... The sewage of this world can easily taint our thinking. The fall itself tainted our thinking and made us so that we could not think on our own. And yet we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the spirit that gives us illumination. And we ask as we study the subject subject of homosexuality that we would have a biblical mind so that we might know how to respond in a biblical way for your purposes and for your honor and glory, in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. I would encourage you to take out your bulletin and the, the outline. I think you'll find it helpful. Always find it helpful, but especially today. What I'd like to do is start out with some key words as we're Again, moving from looking at what a biblical marriage was last week to now the subject of homosexuality. Just four or five key words as we go down this study of homosexuality, understanding God's word. One of the occupational hazards, if you will, of pastoring a church is the necessity of delivering at times bad news. (laughs) Bad news. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 23, verse 21, and this is God speaking, I have not sent these prophets, yet they ran. I've not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they would have turned from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. I I didn't send them, but they went. Not only did they go, they went with haste, they ran. Again, God through Jeremiah is rebuking the shepherds, the shepherds of his day for inventing their own message and preaching it as if it had come from God himself. And if you, if you look around in America, so many preachers are doing that. They're inventing their own message. Oh no, God's okay with homosexuality. God's okay with 
homosexuals, being in the church and accepting them and embracing them and however else you want to say it, endorsing their sin. By the way, let me say right now, uh, we need to minister to homosexuals. We need to get them to hear the message, but you don't embrace the sinful lifestyle. That's where the dividing line is. Okay. Jeremiah 23, actually before verse 21, he said this, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They They make you worthless. What do you mean worthless? Well, unable to know God. Unable to serve God. They, they speak a vision, now this is the point, of their own heart, not from the mouth of the Lord. And then in verse 26, how long will this be, uh, will this be in, in the heart of the prophets who prophesize lies? Indeed, they are prophets of, this, of the deceit of their own heart. There again, second time, of their own heart. They're coming up with the message, but it's not my message, God says. It's their message. I, I think these are scary verses. Why? Because our hearts can easily deceive us. We can think that we are speaking for God, but really only speaking for our, our own thoughts. In other words, we can preach and teach and proclaim what the people want to hear, and not what the Bible clearly says. Second Timothy chapter 4, as Paul is, uh, is uh, encouraging Timothy to be strong in the faith and proclaim and preach the word in season and out of season. And verse 3 says this, second part, because these other people have itching ears. They have itching ears. And they heap up for themselves teachers. And they will, and they, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. He said they have, they have itching ears. They have certain truths that they want to hear and that's, and that's why they, they grab a hold of the truth that the false teachers are, are proclaiming. Why? Because they just want to hear the truth that makes them feel good. Now again, you might say, why? Why, why, are our hearts, why do our hearts desire? Why would a pastor preach the wrong message? Why would a pastor preach a message that is definitely against what God's Word says? Because even pastors desire security. Even pastors desire approval. By the way, I, I appreciate that for the most part, I'm assuming that I'm speaking to the choir. And I don't mean that superficially. I'm saying, I believe many of you, if not the majority, I would hope the majority are saying, you know what, I understand the direction you're going. Preach what God tells, tells you to preach because that's what I want to hear, what God ha- has to say, right? But that's not always true. There's a lot of churches that are just full of people that just want to hear what they want to hear, what the culture says. So because of that, human approval and human applause and human self-gratification and whatever else, pastors, preachers, teachers, they preach what the people want to hear. But we've got to hear what God tells us, right? So the first word, because I said I want to give you some key words, the first word is fear. We should have a fear. But not a fear of man. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man will bring a snare. But the fear of the Lord, because the second part of that verse says this, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord. We, talked, we, we saw the fear of the Lord as that passage I read in Psalms 19. We need to have a fear of the Lord. And if the fear of the Lord is great in our hearts, then the fear of man will be less, a lot less. The greater the fear of uh, God, the less the fear of man. And therefore, we'll go to God's word and say, this is what God says. And we will hold to it. 
as we look at the subject of homosexuality, we must have the fear of the Lord. The second thing I want to have is gospel. That's the second key word, gospel. And this is really going back to review. If you want to throw that chart up. Again, we, we got to make sure that as we're looking at this subject, we, we put it through the, the grid of the gospel. Now again, you remember last week we looked at this. See, sometimes we look at homosexuality and we misunderstand it. You know, they're not like us. Their sin is not like ours. They are defined by their sin. We're not defined by our sin. They don't change. But now when you enter in the gospel, now you start seeing the truth. When you put this, this uh, sin through the, through the gospel, now we start saying, wait a second here. We're all created in God's image. And therefore we have all turned aside. We are all filthy sinners. Totally in need of the, of, the, of the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross. Therefore, we all get a new identity. It's not just the homosexual that needs a new identity. We all need a new identity in Christ. When, when you got saved, you got a new identity in Jesus Christ. And therefore, you know, we can look at them and say they don't change. But the reality is we all need to change and we call it future grace. See, we need the gospel. Because the gospel will keep us humble the gospel will keep us compassionate. The gospel will keep us uh, with pity in the right sense. And the gospel will give us the hope. <laughs> the hope that we can change. The hope that they can change. It gives us power. There's so many things that happen because of the gospel. So <clears throat> not only do we have to have the fear of the Lord, but we need the gospel. And we're going to look at that in future weeks again. But we desperately need the gospel. We got, and what I mean by the gospel is, I don't mean just getting saved. I don't mean just the fact that you recognize your need for a Savior, that you were a sinner and condemned before God, and that you turned to Christ as your Lord and Savior, repented of your sins, and you turned to Him. Many of you have not, most of you have done that. But I'm saying the gospel itself speaks to this issue. It gives us, again, that humility and that pity and that compassion. If you find yourself saying this to home, about homosexuality, yeah then you haven't been hit with the gospel enough. Because the gospel is going to say, listen, you're them. Your sin is different, but you're them. We all need, we all need Christ. The third key word would be heart. Heart. So not only fear of the Lord, fear the gospel story, gospel, but heart, the, the heart of man, the heart of man. See, when you're talking about homosexuality, the question remains... Even to society itself, what's the cause? What's the cause? They're trying to identify the origin. I like how one guy said, locating the cause of homosexuality is like trying to identify the origin of a brawl on a fifth grade playground. No one will admit starting it, but everyone has an opinion as how it got started. Yeah, I mean, it's like when it comes to this, well, what's the cause? Well, and they throw out all kinds of different answers. The American Psychological Association, and again, this is secular. This is what they said. I want to read two quotes. The first one, talking about the orientation. Quote, now again, this is secular. Sexual orientation refers to an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, or sexual attraction to men, women, or both. 
Sexual orientation also re- refers to a person's sense of identity. Now that's where it really becomes, I guess you'd say the word dicey. Because once you use the word identity, that means that's how you were created. That's, how you, that's who I am. But anyways, to a person's sense of identity based on those attractions, related behaviors, and membership in a community of others who share those attractions. Now that's how, that's how they talk about sexual orientation. I mean, it's their identity. And they, they hang with those people. They think like those people. They're in that community with those people. And the thing with our society is we are really, as a society, now encouraging young people to explore and satisfy these sexual attractions. In other words, get to know who you are. Label yourself. And they even tell you, label yourself. What? Straight, gay, bisexual, whatever. Lesbian. Again, when you identify yourself, you're labeling yourself. This is who I am. This is how I fit. This is whom I associate with. This is what I do. Do you see how important that identity uh, marker is? I mean, it's just... Yet the source of the attraction is still a mystery. Let me read a second quote from the, the APA. There is no consensus among scientists about the exact reasons that an individual develops a heterosexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian orientation. What do you mean there's no consent? They can't find the... What makes them them? Although much research has examined the possible genetic, hormonal, and developmental, social, and cultural influence on sexual orientation, no findings have emerged that permit scientists to conclude that sexual orientation is determined by any particular factor or factors. Many think that nature and nurture both play complex roles... Most people experience little or no sense of choice about their sexual orientation. Now, I just want to pull a couple pieces. No consensus, possible, not able to conclude many things. This is a big question mark. Now, now, that's real important because they're asking, what's the source of the sexual attraction? It's unknown. Now, is that absolutely true? No, no, it isn't unknown. Actually, we know exactly where it comes from, and it's the heart. See, they're looking for the external. But if you're a biblical Christian, what do you say? Well, everything comes from the heart. I know where it's coming from. It's from the heart. Bruce Walke, an Old Testament commentator, he, he said this. He believes that the term heart is the most significant word in the Old Testament. It's the most, it's the most prevalent, it's the most significant. It, it occurs, I think, 850-some times just in the Old Testament. The heart, the heart, the heart. And you start saying, well, what is the heart? The heart refers to the causal core of who you are in our control center. Okay, so just think of the heart. And that's why it says, both in the Old and in the New, Old and New Testament, you should love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. It's the causal core. Our heart thinks, our heart decides, (coughs) our heart feels. And again, we're not talking about cardiology. We're not talking about the pumper. We're talking about the inward you, the real you, what, what causes you to do what you do and think what you think and the feeling that you have. So in other words, when I say the heart thinks, that's the intellect. When it decides, that's the will. It feels, that's the emotion. That's why a theologian would usually say the heart is made up of the, 
the, the, the intellect, the will, and the emotions. Emotion, intellect, and will. It's all that. Now, the reason I'm, 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 uh, my, I'm using this third word, because it's very, very important, is as we look at homosexuality, the world is going to be saying, no, no, it's the externals. But I'm going to suggest to you very strongly that the, the Bible would say, no, no, it's the heart. It's what the heart's doing. I'm not saying that the externals don't have a piece of influencing the heart, but it's the heart that makes the choice. Because it's the heart that thinks, it's the heart that decides, it's the heart that feels. It is constantly interpreting information. It is constantly making decisions and expression, expressing feelings. I, I like what um, Paul Tripp, he says, the heart is the, ca- the causal core of your personhood. The causal, causal core. It's the very essence of who you are, of your personhood. It's, it's again, what makes the decisions, what, what thinks, what makes the decisions, and then how it, it, ma- it makes you feel. Now, all those things play together as far as a person who says, this is who I am. Do you see how the heart plays into that? This is who I am. Well, it's the heart speaking. Okay? This is who I am. Over in uh, Proverbs chapter 4, if you want to turn there, Proverbs 4. We're going to be in Proverbs, Genesis, and then over in uh, Leviticus. Proverbs chapter 4. Just one simple verse. Many of you have probably memorized this. Look at this. It says, keep your heart with all diligence. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. And the word keep your heart, some of your translation might say watch over your heart, guard your heart. And it's in the imperative. You must do this. You must guard your heart. If you don't guard your heart, you're going to end up on the wrong path. Why? Because your heart is vulnerable. See, that's why he says keep it with all diligence. The word diligence is confine it. Put it in prison. (laughs) In the good sense. Don't just see the simple. One of the, the characteristics of the simple man in Proverbs is, he, the word literally, simple man, the simple one, is door open. The idea is a simple person just allows all the influences of the world to come on in and influence. Yeah, just hit me. I'm just a learner. Just hit me with whatever you've got, world. You know what the Bible would call that? A simple one. You know what a Bible calls the wise person? One who guards his heart. You want to guard your heart. You don't want to just let it out there with all the, the, the sinful influences. So first of all, your heart is vulnerable. That's why it says, keep your heart with all diligence. But not only that, it's responsible. It's culpable. It's, it's what is guilty if there is guilt. In fact, the New Living Translation of this verse says this, Guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Your heart is what's culpable. Your heart is what's... What is uh, actually guilty. And and you say, well, how do you know that? Well, let me read this. This is what Jesus said in in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men proceed, what? Evil thoughts. Adultery. Now, I want you to get that. From within, out of the heart. Out of the heart, this is what proceeds out of the heart. It doesn't, you don't get defiled from what's within, out. You get defiled from what's within. It's the heart. And out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication, murder, thefts, covetousness, 
wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride. (laughs) You know, by the time Jesus... Foolishness is the last one. Why do you have that wicked thought? Because your heart is involved in the process. It's, it's controlling. Why did you say those wicked words? Your heart. See, it's the heart. The heart is culpable. Jesus in, in 7.23, the next verse. All these evils come from within and defile a man. So what we do, what we do and who we think we are and all that is from what? The heart. We've got to see that. That's, that is so critical because as you deal with this particular sin, you've got to know where, the, where, where is it caused from? Is it just nurture? Is it nature? Is it, are they born that way? Is it genetic? Or is there something else being played out? Well, if you're not a biblical Christian, you're not going to come to the idea of heart. Right? But it's the heart. Let me give you one other passage at Jesus. Luke 6, verse 43. 643. For a good tree does not bear bad, uh, bear bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. For every tree is known by its fruit. For men do not gather figs from thorns. <coughs> now, that does make sense to you, right? Men don't gather figs from a thorn bush. Thorn bushes produce what? Thorns. Fig trees, if it's a good fig tree, produces? That makes total sense. Nor do, nor do they gather grapes from a bramble bush. You don't go to a bramble bush and say, I'm going to get some good grapes there. You don't get good grapes or even bad grapes from a bramble bush. You don't get any grapes. So he says, a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasures of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Now he, here he's primarily zeroing in on uh, sins of the mouth. But the, but the, the, app, uh, the principle is, is true. Uh, where, did the, where does the good come from? Heart. Where does the bad come from? Heart. So let's, uh, let's look at one more chart. I was going to put this in your bulletin, but I, I couldn't get it to be clear. Wait, now that's not clear either. Oh, there it is. <laughs> See, this is the heart, and we're going to, you know, uh, represent it like this. But again, you're talking about the causal core of your personhood, the very, the you. And if you think about your heart... You have in your heart idolatry and fear. Now, let me read some of these. Idolatry, I worship, and that's always true. You're worshiping. It's just whether or not you're worshiping the true God. And you have fears. I can't live without. You know, that's, the fear is that I'm going to live without this. So I can't live without this. And you have lusts in your heart, desires. I want, I need, I have to have. In fact, it even goes to this point. I must have. It's my right to have. Those are idolatries. And then you have pride. I am. I'm the standard. God's not the standard. I'm the standard. This is what I want. I demand it. Now, look at this. I want you to understand this. This is the heart and homosexual influences. Am I saying that all the decisions of the homosexual comes from just the heart? No, no, there's, there's other outside influences. Now, I just want you to underline this, influences. These are not determinants, these are influences. So, it might be this, I have a little connection with my dad. So now, I'm starting to look and say, you know, I want a connection with a man, but it's not my dad. A lack of peer relationship, or maybe a rejection by peer. Maybe even more specific. 
verbal or sexual abuse, vulnerable to advances, and you know, you, all these things that have happened to the person that has affected their internal heart. They're influencing. These are massaging. These right here are massaging this right here. Because you already have the idolatry and the fears, but now I don't have a father that's really I can really depend on. I need a man in my life that I can depend on. And you're massaging something that's already there. Or maybe it's a physical side, an influence. Remember, these are influences. Sensitivity, creativity. In other words, you know what? I just get rejected because I'm not accepted for who I am. You know, I'm talking when they're 10, 12, 15, 20. Lack of athleticism, being an athlete. Um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into. Now, again, I'm talking about male homosexuality versus uh, lesbian at this point. Tensions, strong sexual attraction. Oh, no. You mean I can have a strong sex, you know, uh, sexual attraction to the opposite or to the same sex attraction? Absolutely. Why? Because you got this going on. See, if you, if you minus out the heart, you, then you're saying it's either nurture or nature. Genetic, something out there. But now when you add this in, this is the big piece. This is the causal core. But, but understand, you can be influenced. There's influences. I, I, have to, I have to work against what my heart says at times, right? Right? You think I never lost? Oh, I just lost. That's who I am. God made me that way. I'm just going to keep lusting. No. Okay? And then there's cultural influences, gender confusion. I mean, this, the culture, marital breakdown, you were born gay, you chose to be gay. I mean, the culture is nurturing and saying, listen, listen, there's no right or wrong. It's all re- relative. Do as you, do as your, now they'll say maybe even this way, do as your heart says. Well, don't do as your heart says. Now, you put the heart in those influences and now you get these thoughts. I'm different. I was born this way. I can never change. I'm gay. See? Why? Because the heart, these thoughts nurtured the heart, the negative side, the I worship and I can't live without all this. And now you come with those thoughts. And then you have the feelings, sad, lonely, hopeless, unfulfilled, okay? Or actions, homosexuality, pornography, masturbation, hookups, all that. But the point is, is these go through the heart. That's the whole point of the the. These go through the heart. You can't eliminate the heart. That's a key piece. That is the key piece. It's the act of heart that actually makes the choice to think thoughts and to feel and to act. So the third key word, and I know I'm spending a lot of time on this, but the third key word is heart. First is fear. Second is gospel. Third is, is heart. And fourth, it's not in your outline, but I'd say this, courage. Because in this day and age, you're going to have to have courage, right? We're going to have to have, we have, act like men. If you're a man, act like a man. If you're a woman, act like a woman. What do you mean? Be what God wants you to be before Scripture, okay? Key, those four key words will lead us right now into, into this study, okay? Fear of the Lord, not fear of man. Know what the gospel is and how it affects this, this area of our thinking, <clears throat> um, the heart is the causal core, and we have to have courage. Roman numeral two, let's do this. And today we're just going to look at what does the Old Testament say about homosexuality? What does the Old Testament say? And now the first thing I would say this, and this is one of the, I'm trying to bring up some of the questions. 
One of the questions people have is, why is there so little said about homosexuality in the Bible? I mean, there's about eight or ten passages that you could pin and say that. Twenty at the most, but then some of those are uh, questionable whether they're literally talking about homosexuality or just sexual sin. Let me say this, just to, to answer that first question. There was little said... Because actually there was little said about homosexuality till about 50 years ago, even in America. Right? I mean, if you ask somebody from 1900s, what do you think about same-sex marriage? They'd say, what? Uh, you know, a man with a man or a woman with a woman. But what do you, what's the question? Well, is it wrong or right? I mean, they might even say, wait a second, maybe we need to put you with the white coats because you really don't know the answer. See, up to 50 years ago, it wasn't even debatable. Now, you take that same concept back um, into the, in the Old and New Testament. It wasn't debatable. You didn't have to like... They didn't write a lot. Why? Because it wasn't debatable. So again, between the fact that it's been brought up in the last 50 years and now tried to be made moral and legal, well, that's one of the reasons why you don't hear much about it. Ancient Jews and Christians... Both considered it a common sin, so you wouldn't have to write about it. By the way, interestingly, bestiality is written about even less. So if you try to take the argument, well, it's not written about much, therefore it must be okay, you have to include that sin as well. Let me give you another one. Uh, in Romans, it is a vivid example of human rebellion in, in Paul's a letter to the Romans. In other words, the Bible is not silent. When it does speak of it, it speaks very clearly, precise. You know, by the way, I, the Bible speaks with unbelievable candor. But I'm going to say it this way, chaste candor. We're going to have to be careful not to say too much, right? You only want to say what the Bible says. But, but again, if you, if you take what the Bible says, yes, there's only maybe 15 or possibly 20 Reference to homosexuality, but on the opposite side, look at how much has been said about what a true marriage is. I mean, you can go to Genesis, you can go to Song of Solomon, you can look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy and see what the law says about it, you can go in the New Testament and a number of passages. So in other words, it tells you what the right thing is, and then just says, well, that's wrong. And it just passes by, because you know, if you know what the right is, you don't have to worry, you know, like, wonder what the wrong is, all the other is wrong. So there's a, a number of different reasons why, um, you know, why the Bible does not say much in comparison to, what is it, it has uh, 30,000 verses and 1,189 chapters, but it only has about 15 or 20 references to Why? Because it's already defined it. It was, it was known as a common sin. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter uh, 19. Oh, let me give you one other. Why did Jesus not mention homosexuality at all? Well, but he did affirm marriage, right? Matthew 19, uh, Mark, what is it, 12 or 14? I mean, he said, for this cause, one man, one woman, and, and, and they should not be separated, right? In other words, commitment for life. So Jesus uh, confirmed what a real marriage was, therefore he didn't have to speak of uh, homosexuality. Well, let's, let's just give you two different examples uh, in the Old Testament as far as, um, you know, where this is found. The first reference is in Genesis chapter 19. 
I, I, I reference this as those wicked cities. <laughs> those wicked cities. Sodom and Gomorrah. Throughout the rest of Scripture, they are associated with extreme sinfulness. Sodom and Gomorrah. And you know that. Again, if you're in the Old Testament, you can find references to Sodom and Gomorrah in Isaiah 1, Isaiah 3, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 16. I mean, it's over and over. If you go to the Gospels in Matthew 10, Matthew 11, Luke 10, Luke 17, Romans 9, 2 Peter 2. I mean, over and over, looking back and say those wicked cities. Now, let me just give you a narrative rather than reading the entire passage. Again, everyone agrees that the story of Genesis 19 is horrifying. Two strangers meet Lot, that's Abraham's nephew, at the gate of Sodom. Lot convinces the men who are actually angels to stay with him at his house. After a meal and before they could retire for the night, the men of Sodom, both young and old, surround Lot's house and demand to have sex with the two travelers. By the way, the text says that the men of Sodom demanded to know the men staying with Lot. That's in verse 5. In Genesis, the word know is often used as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Now, that's important because what they're asking, what they're demanding, not asking, demanding is that we might have sexual intercourse with them. I say that's important because in in a moment you're going to find a lot of people are trying to change that. The same verse that is used in verse 8. Look at verse 8. See now, I have two, or excuse me, the same word. I have two daughters who have not known a man. Now, it didn't mean that they didn't know somebody. They just meant they were virgins. After Lot refuses to bring out his guests and offers his virgin daughters instead, how perverted is he? The mob grows even more and more unruly, but just as they press against Lot to break the door down, The two guests bring Lot into the house, strike the men of Sodom with blindness. And though they didn't get to do their crime, the men of Sodom did more than enough to earn the infamous reputation, end quote. And look at what they do. I mean, look at the last verse, 11. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. That shows the sex drive right there. Well, but this is who I am. This is me. Remember, what is the causal core? The heart. The heart. But the question is, what is the actual sin or attempted sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the revisionists would say this. You know what the sin is? Gang rape. See, it's not that they want to have sex. It was, see, in our day and age, you don't understand, John. In our day and age, we have consensual covenantal sexual relationship we actually have a man and a man loving each other that was gang rape that's why that was wrong actually there's a whole nother set of revisionists that say this no no Um, actually the sin wasn't even sexual it had to do with hospitality because in Ezekiel 16 47 it says this to let's see here 49, Ezekiel 16, 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. 
That's hospitality, strength in the hand of the poor and needy. And therefore they said, oh no, 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 the sin of Sodom wasn't sexual at all. It had to do with hospitality. Now again, context is very, very important here because if you look at the context in verse 47 of that passage, Ezekiel 16, 47, it says, to their abominations. And it says this, they were more corrupt than they. Talking about Israel. (coughs) And they were haughty and committed abominations, verse 50, before me. Therefore I took them away as I saw fit. And the the same word abomination, ta'abah, that is used in Ezekiel 16, is used for Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, referring to a man lying with a man, and it is, quote, an abomination. In other words, the abomination in Ezekiel is not the lack of hospitality. The abomination was of the sexual side. They were so degenerate in their sexual activity. And if you say, well, is there anything else to back it up? You can go back to the 2nd century, actually B.C. And these were some of the things that were said of Sodom by secular writings, just going back to their sin. What, what do you remember about Sodom? Like this one, quote, Do not become like Sodom, which departed from the order of nature. Oh, that's interesting. The order of nature. What do you mean? Unnatural. Another uh, quote from Enoch. Apparently there was a guy called Enoch the Righteous. Quote, you will, be sexually, you will be sexually promiscuous like the promiscuity of the Sodomites and will perish. Now again, you're promiscuous. Again, that had to do with sexual. And then finally, the Lord will execute judgment according to the pollution of Sodom. According to the pollution of Sodom. These are all found. By the way, these are the two best books that I have found. One is called Love into the Light and I referenced them last week. And the other one is, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? By Kevin DeYoung. If you want one book that's the best book, it's this one right here. What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Kevin DeYoung. Much of what I've taken is is from this book, well, these two books. So again, what is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It's, It's the homosexuality. In fact, in Jude 7... It says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in a similar manner, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and going after strange flesh, that's what Jude 7 says, going after strange flesh, which is unnatural desire, i.e. not men with angels. Some have said, well, it was the men with angels thing. No, no, strange flesh. Flesh would be human. So it's, it's homosexuality. Uh, gone forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So Jude, Jude 7 is really a key passage. Well, Jude 7 and Romans 1. We're going to look at Romans 1 all next week. I mean, I think by the time you get through Genesis, Leviticus, get into Romans, and 1 Corinthians, it, it just becomes an airtight case. Even though you don't see, you, you, you don't read about homosexuality only a handful of times compared to the whole Bible, you say, okay... We know exactly what it is. Exactly. So that's the, uh, the storyline of those wicked cities. Let's go over to Le- uh, Leviticus for time's sake. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18. And I know some of you are at this very moment probably saying, oh, do we have to keep hearing? Can't we just get into the glories of Christ? 
Sometimes I feel like when we're talking about this, you're just being hit with sewage. But you know what? We live in a world where sewage is all around us, and you've got to be able to defend the truth, don't you? That's why I say we have to have the fear of the Lord, we have to know what the gospel says, and we have to know that the cause is the heart. Through that, you can have courage. So really, we're only spending a couple weeks on this. <sighs> only two weeks? Yeah, we could spend ten weeks. Only two. These are direct statements of a delicate subject. Direct statements of a de- delicate subject. You know, when the Bible addresses the issue, again, as I said earlier, it addresses issues with remarkable candor. But it also it does it with... When I say candor, frankness, or openness, but it also is chaste. It's pure. So I'm going to just read what the text says, right? Just read what the text says. Now again, we're in in the book of Leviticus, and the theme of the Leviticus is really holiness. The first 17 chapters, or 16 chapters, talk about the, the holy people, the holy priesthood, the holy place, which is the temple. Uh, all the pieces of holy clothing and the holy land, which is Canaan, and the holy days. I mean, all the, the first half of Leviticus is just talking about holiness, but it's how the people of Israel should approach God. It's in chapter 17 that theologians would say is the holiness code. It's how the Israelites should live as God's holy people. And the the summary of that is in chapter 19, verse 2. To all Israel, this is what the Lord says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. In other words, I'm, I'm telling you these standards because holiness is the key. You must be holy. Now, if you're in, if you're in Leviticus 18, now, now notice what he... I've got to read the first five verses because it sets it up. Look at the first five verses of Leviticus 18. The laws of sexual morality. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. According to the, according to the doings of the land of Egypt where you dwelt, you shall not do. Don't be like the Egyptians. Where you dwelt. You shall not do. And according to the doings of the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you to. See, in other words, this is where you came from. This is where you're going. You shall not do. Nor shall you walk in their ordinances. You shall observe my judgments and keep my ordinances to walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. I mean, he said it over and over again. Same thing. Listen, you came from here, Egypt. You're going here, Canaan. But listen, you're not going to live like them. You're not going to think like them. You're not going to act like them. You have to be different. Isn't that what we are? That's what we are called to do. Be ye separate. Come out from among them. Don't think like them. Think different. And then he gets into the passage. And again, candor, chasteness. He's just, this is it. Let me just read it. Verse 6. And I'm only going to read pieces, okay? Because we don't have to read the whole thing. But I want you to see the downgrade. Verse 6, he starts out with incest. None of you shall approach anyone who is near of kin to him to uncover his nakedness. I am the Lord. The nakedness of your father or the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's nakedness. 
The nakedness of your sister, the daughter of your father, or the daughter of your mother, whether born at home or elsewhere, their nakedness you shall not uncover. The nakedness of your son's daughter, or your daughter's daughter, the nakedness you shall not not uncover, for theirs is your own nakedness. The nakedness of your father's father's wife's daughter. I mean, it just goes on and on. Don't uncover it. It is wrong. It is against against God's law. Now you can just skip right down to verse uh, 22. Oh, let's start up in verse uh, 19. No, verse 20. Moreover, you shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not uh, let any of your descendants pass through the fire of Mo, uh, to Moloch. That's where they would sacrifice a child to the God, God Moloch. Nor shall you profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. And then in verse 22 is the one you want to highlight. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. There's that word, abomination, used of uh, Sodom over in Ezekiel 16. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. I mean, it just goes on and on. And you only have a couple uh, instances of bestiality, but again, it makes the point, right? This is what his point is. Don't be like Egypt. Don't be like Canaan. Live according to my law. And this is the other thing that you see with this. And there's a downgrade. If you you step off of God's uh, will, then you're going to keep stepping. And that's what you will see in our society. See, it won't be long until they're saying a marriage uh, could be of three or four or five, and why not add in an animal if you want, right? I mean, isn't that what is going to happen? So either you stand right now and say, no, a marriage is between a man and a woman, one flesh, or you just open up the, you can't, no, I mean, it's, that is what the Bible says, that's what you stand on. That's why I say you have to have courage. It doesn't take any courage to agree with the culture. They'll love you. It'll be God that has the issue, right? So again, I I trust that that's where you're at. I really, really, really trust. Because look at the downgrade. They go from incest to adultery to killing children to homosexuality to bestiality. That's the downgrade. Go over to Leviticus 20. Now you find out the consequence and the judgment for those sins. See, in chapter 18, you didn't find out the judgment. You didn't find out the penalty. But over in chapter 20, let's start on verse 10. Same thing you're going to see. that Stepping down into more and more perversity, more and more depravity. That's what you're going to find. The man who, is, uh, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he, should, he, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. And see, now you see the penalty. Before it was just, this is what it is. Verse 11, the man who lies with, a father, with his father's wife has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Let me add, in Deuteronomy 22, it says this. If a man take, uh, rapes a woman, like forces himself upon her, she was not consenting, then only he dies. But, it, but she needs to at least scream. She should have screamed, okay? That's, but the point is this. is not saying that any... Like over in Iran... The woman is being stoned. She's the, she's the one that's being violated. No, the Bible is very clear. It's the man that would be put to death. Um, but here they both, because they're both consenting to it, both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. 
If a man lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall be put to death. They have committed perversion. Their blood shall be upon them. Verse 13, if a man lies with a male as he lies with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. There again, see that word abomination, Ezekiel 16? They shall surely be put to death. Their blood shall be upon them. If a man marries a woman and her mother is, and her mother, again, the woman and her mother, it is wickedness. They shall be burned with fire, both he and they, that they may be, there be no wickedness among them. If a man mates with an animal, he shall surely be put to death, and you shall kill the animal. If a woman approaches any animal, and he goes on. I mean, isn't that perversion? Like you want to take a bath? But you know what? In our society, how many times you're watching something and a, something goes by and, and they try to make it so that you respond in an emotional laugh or something? It shouldn't. It should never. Because once you go from Leviticus 18 to 20, you start saying, wait a second, this is capital punishment. These people are killed because of this immorality. And it's not just, you know, we're not just talking about homosexuality. We're talking about all the immorality out there. And you know what the other thing we find out in in Leviticus 18 and, and, and 20? Now, this is how many years, you know, thousands of years later, that the sins you see in our society are not new sins. They just get, keep getting recycled. Maybe technology makes it easier to get to you, but the sins are the same old sins. Why? Because the sins weren't invented. They're not invented from externally. They're from what? Within the heart. And we have wicked hearts. So again... That's the sin. I think it's very clear. Is it still sinful today? Well, this is how you would prove this. You'd say, well, listen. Yes, Leviticus does talk about eating pig. There's even a part in, the, in Leviticus that talks about, you know, you don't want to have two different types of fabric being worn because you're holy. And, and that had to do with ceremonial law. But this part that we're talking about here, I want you to get this because I've heard uh, revisionist homosexual individuals say this, listen, they talk about not eating bacon. Do you eat bacon? So what's your problem with this? Sexual activity. Just remember that when it comes to uh, immorality, that's part of the moral code, the moral law, moral, underline it, moral. And what you see in the Old Testament is what? Is what you see as prohibited what? In the New Testament. See, in the New Testament, there's nowhere that you're going to see and you shouldn't eat a pig. Don't raise a pig, don't eat bacon, add but in the New Testament, you're going to find a number of lists. Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 1. And what is part of the list? Immorality. Prohibition against immorality. So if someone comes up to you and says, well, look at the ceremonial law. Why don't you carry that? Well, no, that was ceremonial law. What we're talking about is the moral law. And the moral law is carried over into the New Testament. So this is binding. That's what I'm trying to say. This is binding on us. And we're going to see this in a greater clarity in Romans chapter 1 next week. Next week really puts it all together. I'm trying to lay out pieces, but once you get to Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, it just becomes crystal clear, and that's the New Testament. But I felt like we needed to give, you know, we need to keep asking these questions and answering these questions. And I would hope, by the way, that you're not going to, please don't come up to me, boy, why would you read that text? Because it's in the Bible. See, sometimes when it's in the Bible, oh, why are you talking about it? Do you ever watch TV? 
only come up to me if you say this, you know what, I never allow my kids to hear any of that crap on TV. Why would you read it in front in the Bible? I, I'll accept you. But if, then I'll start asking you some of the programs you listen to, right? I mean, sometimes we get hypocritical at this point. Okay, let me close because I'm out of time. How should we then speak? How should we then speak? Should we, should we have dialogue? I'm hoping I'm giving you information and conviction. I hope it's building conviction in your heart that you're saying, okay, I see it. I see, I see how much God hates it, but I also see that the gospel can save a person. He saved me. He can save a person that has that particular sin because sinners are sinners. Yes, we should discuss this topic. And again... I would say this, I would want to discuss this topic with someone if, it, if they really want to come to a conclusion. Not just talking, because talking is not the problem. The problem, I would say, is this, incessant talking. Sometimes we have incessant dialogue. In other words, if someone wants to say, listen, what does the Bible say? I really want to know, what does the Bible say about this sin? Or just say even this activity. All right, let's, let's look, let's... But you know, in our society, there is just incessant talking. It almost becomes a cover for indecision or even a cover for cowardice, right? We just keep talking. We just keep talking. I like how Kevin DeYoung said this. It's death by dialogue. You just do it so long, the other person just gets so tired. I just don't even want to talk about it anymore. Death by dialogue. The conversation... The studies and opinions never stop. You know, we have to just get back to the historic position. Why? Because there always will be another paper. There will always be another symposium. There will always be another, uh, another round of conversation. There will always be more. Unless you say this, that what you guys are saying may be wrong or what you guys are saying may be right, but what you guys are saying out there in the culture is not authoritative. But if you want to know what's authoritative, we can go right to it. Do you see the difference there? When you're talking about this subject, there are some good things even being said by secular people. It's not all bad. But there's also some bad things. But none of what they're saying is authoritative. The only authority, because of the noetic effect of sin, because we can't think straight because we're sinners, the only, the only uh, true source, authoritative truth, of truth is the word of God. We have to go right back to this. So again, we can, you can't just agree to disagree. We have to stand for truth. Now let me give you six bullets on how should we speak then. And, and I get this, I get, well I got this from DeYoung, but, but, but I, I got to think in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 it says this, We urge you brethren, admonish the unruly, those are the ones that are out of line, encourage the fainthearted, those who fear and doubt, be, help them to be encouraged and bold, encourage the fainthearted, help the weak, those who are without spiritual moral strength, help them to get firmness. Okay? I mean, that's what, that's what Paul says. Listen, if they're unruly, get them in line. If they need to be encouraged, then encourage them. If they are weak, then strengthen them. I mean, in other words, know who you're talking to. And I'm going to encourage you, as you have opportunity to speak to different ones, know who you're talking to. Example, if you're speaking to a cultural elite who despises us and our beliefs, we want to be bold and courageous. I think that's good wisdom. I mean, if you're dealing with a fool, and I mean this in respectfully, you're, I want to say respectfully, they're a fool. What do you mean? They're not going to change. 
They've made up their mind. They're just talking to you. They're just trying to make you look like a fool. Well, then just be bold and courageous. If we're speaking to a struggler who fights same-sex attraction, we want to be patient and sympathetic. No, there is hope. If we're speaking to a sufferer who has, who has been mistreated by the church, and by the way, there are those out there, right? They went for help and they just found that they were just like, malign, get out of We don't want to deal with you. We have to be winsome and humble. Hey, I understand. There are Christians out there that don't deal with you biblically. No, I want to deal with you biblically. Number four, if we are speaking to a shaky Christian who seems ready to compromise the faith for society's approval, we want to be persuasive and persistent. No, this is truth. This is the authoritative word of God. If we are speaking to those who are not living as the scriptures would have them live, we want to be straightforward and earnest. That is a sin. And that is what God wants you to repent of. And then finally, if we are speaking to a belligerent Christian who, who, hates or fear, who hate or fear persons who identify as gay or lesbian, we want to be clear and corrective. You know, the Westboro, is it Westboro Church, Baptist Church? Just, no, no, we want to confront them. See, there's a different way to confront whoever you're talking with. For example, like for you, if you come up to me and say, man, I really struggle with some of the things, oh, I'm depends on where you're at. Do you really want to talk? Do you really want to see what scripture says? Do you really want to have a conversation or is it, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's how you, who are you speaking with? And I would hope that you would, would be able to see the difference there, right? By the way, this is one of the hardest messages I've had to give. <laughs> I love talking about Jesus and his sacrifice and his forgiveness and his identity, right? Our identity in him. But, but this is standing for truth as well. And do we live in a sewer pit in, in America? Do we? I hope you see yes, right? I mean, if, if you turn on the TV. So we just have got to know this is what God thinks. And not be like the prophets of Jeremiah's time who just want to agree and, and say everything that everyone else wants to hear. We need to know the truth. And then, again, lovingly speak the truth, right? Lovingly speak the truth. So let's stand as we close.